Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hey, this is Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, a podcast where we go beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Brent Henson, your uh, co-host extraordinaire, and this is an episode that I've been looking forward to for a while because uh, not only are we talking about a really interesting case, we're also going to get some inside baseball type details from our guest and our host, since both were lead detectives on the case. And I'm going to welcome in our host first, and then he'll introduce you to our featured guest today. One of the nicest guys around. He is a fellow Michigander, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? Good. How are you doing today, Brent? It's a lovely day in the great state of Tennessee. Is it? <laughs> you know, it's not too bad up here. Uh, uh, I was actually talking to some people from Tennessee yesterday, and they were telling me about the uh, heat index that you guys have been experiencing. And Oh, uh, yeah, that's a caveat. It's only nice if you're inside with air conditioning. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> well, I, uh, I happened to be on a, a call yesterday with uh, somebody from Tennessee and somebody from Arizona, and uh, they just about hung up on me when I told them the temperature in Michigan. But Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. But, uh, hey, I'm really excited about uh, today's broadcast as well uh, because i get to introduce one of my best friends a guy that i've worked with for a long time without further ado i'm going to introduce uh, my friend victor loria how you doing today vic i'm doing good mike and vic i don't like saying how long i've known him because that uh, gives an indication of my age which is one of the nice things about doing a, a an audio podcast is that people don't see me but uh, Vic and I have been friends. We've been partners. We've been co-workers for over a quarter of a century. I've been your boss. You've been my boss. <laughs> it's, it's just this back and forth. But uh, Vic. How does that work? How does that uh, relationship <laughs> well, work? It's, it, it's been complex. Yeah, it's been fun the entire way. Just to give you a little background on Vic, uh, when, when I first came uh, to our agency, uh, he was a police officer. He was working canine. I was one of the first canine people uh, at our agency. He was a fantastic patrol officer, uh, but as it is with anybody that's really good at that, uh, he eventually moved up to be a detective. And, and I say this without reservation, and he gets mad when I say it. He is the best investigator, the best interviewer that I have ever had the pleasure of working with. But but I do have to ask him a couple questions to kind of prep things, if that's all right. So, so Vic, how, how long was your law enforcement career? It was a little over 27 years. And, and during that time, you held the rank of police officer and yep. you were a detective. Yeah. Did a little undercover work too, didn't I, you? I did. One of the best times of my life. As with any undercover team, you had your own nickname. And what was that nickname? And that was Poco. And what, what is what does Poco mean? And well, it, it, the translation is a little bit. And we're, we're not going to go into the story behind the nickname, but it's... I would say, this is the place where we need to go behind the name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, he, he was one of our first undercover, very successful there. Then you got promoted to sergeant. Yeah, I spent a little time as a sergeant and uh, enjoyed that. And, you know, I thought that's where I'd retire um, when I was... Not even close. Yeah. Well, you know, we plan and God laughs. <laughs> exactly. um, I, I thought, you know, ultimately maybe I would make it to detective sergeant and, 
as things would be in my career before I knew it, I was an assistant chief of police. Never was a detective sergeant, just throwing that out there, talking about plans. Uh, But you've since retired. And what do you do now? I am the department chair of Madani University's criminal justice program, which is a small Catholic Felician University in Metro Detroit. Uh, on a part-time basis, you also do some training for command presence as well. Correct? I do. And that's one of my loves. I never was a great student, like a lot of my criminal justice friends. I think we kind of picked that career uh, for certain reasons. Um, but somehow I found my way into the classroom and I absolutely love it, um, whether it's at the collegiate level or teaching with command presence. As I said, you come from a a family, a Michigan family that truly could be called the first family of law enforcement. To tell tell me about the the law enforcement relations you have. Well, um, my father was the first district court magistrate for the city of Grand Rapids, the sixty first district court, and my brothers and I um, went to a small school and downtown Detroit. And after we get out of school, we would go and wait for my dad uh, to get off work and we'd we'd all ride the bus home together. So um, we would sit outside his courtroom and we'd see a parade really of two different types of people. Those people that were interacting with the criminal justice system, mostly against their will, and police officers. And I remember at an early age, um, you know, just looking at those guys and gals and all the bells and whistles they had in their uniforms. And I I decided when I was about eight years old that that's what I'd want to do. And uh, eventually uh, I became a police officer, was hired on by the city of Novi. My brother Cal, who's um, about 14 months my junior, followed in my footsteps and he was hired by uh, a department a couple miles south of where I worked. And then um, my brother Paul went into law enforcement and is now the director of public safety in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, which is where Central Michigan University is located. Dan Marley, right? That's where he. Yeah, uh, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And uh, oh, God, the the football player that took off his jersey last season. Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown. Yeah, yeah. Antonio Brown's a a chip as well. (laughs) Representing CMU. Yeah, yeah. I I think they're talking more Marley now than they are Antonio (laughs) Brown, but. Um, yeah, and then my baby brother, Dominic, um, I think because um, when we would come home, he would we'd revel him with, you know, all of our stories and interactions. Um, he followed in our footsteps and uh, he was hired on at Farmington Hills. And next week he will be promoted to lieutenant. We have uh, you and Cal have retired because Cal retired. What was same year? He retired in September of 15, and, and I left in October. And he, was he a lieutenant when he retired? Yeah, yep. He left as a lieutenant and then um, for a few years was um, a chief of police in a small town in Michigan's Thumb. So, so Brent, you can see here that, that law enforcement truly does run in the Lauria family. Yeah, and I'm kind of curious. To, you're, you're teaching at Madonna University, correct? Yes. 
What what time what type of classes are you teaching there? I'm wondering, uh, do you get into the the nuts and bolts of different types of cases, or is it? Like- yeah, yeah, we actually do. Um, the the great. I'm thing- assuming you get people like me who watch true crime all the time and are interested in this kind of thing. Yeah, um, it's really great cross section of students, and I guess the you know when I left law enforcement, uh, I told myself I would never ever be a boss again. I never wanted to manage anybody. Um, for a lot of different reasons. And then I found my way to Madonna and as circumstances would, would happen, um, they offered me uh, the position as, of the department chair a few years after I was there as a professor. And uh, the great thing about being the department chair is you get to pick and choose what classes you, you want to teach. So um, I have a passion for police ethics. Um, and then really my other three classes are interview, uh, and interrogation, which I absolutely love. I teach a criminal investigations course and a homicide course. All of those courses, I use real life examples. My homicide course is literally filled with homicides that I investigated and not, and not just the details of it, but the actual crime scene photographs and, Um, We use some of the interviews and some of the police reports, and I do the same thing um, in my criminal investigations class. As a matter of fact, uh, another big case that Mike and I worked was a million-dollar jewelry store robbery, carjacking, kidnapping, home invasion. Was there anything else in there, Mike? Um, I mean, in multiple counties, and in fact, uh, Brent's from Genesee County. Oh, okay. So, do you know where Lake Linden is? Uh, just by Fenton? Well, I know where Fenton's at. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, so it's by Fenton. So, um, and, and it was, it, it's a really another super involved, complex case. Um, that Mike and I worked, and, and I use that in my criminal justice class. And what I did was, I I took our report, which is probably 150 pages long, and I just break it up into different stages. And I say, okay, you know, here's the original crime report. Now you are are the detective. What are you going to follow up on? What are your next steps? And over the successive uh, weeks, they get more and more of the police report. And um, the feedback on it is great because there it, it's not just read a textbook and try to regurgitate you know some type of information or acronym or something they're actually out there really doing police work so um i i love it would it be safe to say that you you get people that just graduated from high school but then we also have uh quite a few of the adult learners oh, yeah. in, in the um in the classes yeah yeah. So people with a de- varying degrees of life experience. And, and we have some current professionals that, you know, they, they went into the field and they had an associate's degree and now they're coming back to complete their undergraduate degree. A lot of them for promotional and retirement reasons, but they provide a lot of value in the class because, you know, while these assignments are, you know, relatively easy for them based upon their experience, the knowledge that they can also impart to the rest of the students is, is very valuable. Uh, when I was first uh, brought up to be a detective, I was very fortunate that this guy kind of took me under his wing and, and kind of mentored me along. And uh, as a result of that, I got to be involved in some cases with Vic. Uh, We're going to talk about one of those cases now, because I even looking back now, all these years later, it still is one of the highlights uh, of my career. And mine, too. 
So uh, tell me how you came to be involved in a, uh, a homicide that involved a victim by the name of Cameron Sanders. So um, I was assigned to the detective bureau. It was uh, April 14th. There were a couple of uniformed officers that were sent up to uh, the area surrounding a major mall in Novi. Real super busy place on an individual who was possibly sleeping in the woods. Well, they went out and checked it out, and obviously the person was deceased. And, um, you know, we started to, to roll up there. And once we arrived on the scene, we were briefed by the um, two responding officers. And really what it was was there was a body out in a field in between the mall and uh, the major expressway there, which is uh, I-96. And we started the investigation from there. It really was kind of fortuitous, a stroke of luck, uh, because it wasn't a remote area, but there happened to be a guy going back and he was scrapping or something. Yeah. Memory serves yeah. correct. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an area where nobody would actually go. There's really no reason to be back there, but there was an individual who was looking for scrap metal and he just tools up and down, you know, different roads. And this is really, it's hardly a road. It's more of a, what I call a two rut road. He saw somebody laying out kind of in this grassy field and took the road to the end, which was probably another 10th of a mile or so, turned around and came back and um, he said, you know, that, that doesn't look normal. I'm going to call the police. And Now, for context, how often does this happen uh, where you're at? I know you're uh, outside of Detroit, yeah. and it's more probably more common inside uh, Detroit proper, but outside where you're at, is it rare? Yeah, it's very rare. We, we, you know, we would be lucky to have maybe a murder every two years or so. Sometimes we'd go stretches longer than that, um, sometimes shorter. But one of the things that made this such an important case, besides it being a homicide, was that it, it was next to our major mall, which at that time was the number one taxpayer in attraction to the city. Um, so it, it became high profile right away um, within the media. And so when you started the investigation and you're going up to the scene and you're, you're looking at, at our victim there, do, do you remember the, the things that immediately caught your eye when you're when you're when you're checking him out? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the first thought I had when I got out there and and I saw him, he was laying on his back. Um, he had one leg that was kind of his left leg was kind of bent underneath him and his right leg was fully extended. And both his hands were kind of like up in the hands up position while he was laying on the ground. I looked around. It's a grassy area. I didn't see any shell casings. There, there weren't any real tire impressions on the road. And the first thought that came to my mind was, we're screwed. He had been dead for a while. I didn't know, obviously, how long, but it, it wasn't in the past 12 to 18 hours. And I said to myself, we're, this is going to be a tough one. Now, just for the benefit of those who may be listening, th this was completely outdoors, in a field. So what are some of the things that you face when you're when you're t talking about an outdoor crime scene that you perhaps don't have to worry about when you're doing uh, an investigation indoors? Well, the, the elimination of evidence is is the big thing. You know, um, if if we were fortunate enough to get some tire impressions and some mud or something like that, you know, those 
can be taken care of with rain or other vehicles that had come through there. We know that, you know, the, the scrapper had been through there. So now which tracks are what there's likely not going to be any fingerprints on anything. The recovery of DNA is going to be difficult. We didn't know whether or not he was killed there or he was killed somewhere else and dumped there because there were, there was really no visible blood uh, around the body at all. So outdoor scenes can be really, really challenging. And when you add to that a delay of, you know, hours to days, it, it makes it even more difficult. Now, I have to give some kudos here to the Michigan State Police Crime Lab, uh, because we're very fortunate when, when there's a major scene, they are more than willing to come out and assist with the processing of the scene, which is what occurred in this case, correct? Yeah. Um, we For major scenes, we contact uh, the Michigan State Police. And on that day, we did. And I was um, fortunate enough to make contact with somebody who I developed a good personal and professional relationship with. His name's Guy Nutter. He still works for uh, the state police. And he brought his team out and uh, they started processing it. One of the things that I think is important in, in law enforcement is good relationships. And oftentimes we have maybe the same goal, but we go about it differently. Or, you know, my job is obviously different than somebody who processes the crime scene. But over the preceding years, you know, our department had developed a very strong working relationship with the state police. So when we called them, they knew that it was something significant. And they knew that when they showed up, the I's were dotted and the T's were going to be crossed. And uh, they brought their team out and started processing the scene, which um, was helpful. They found a couple of bullets in the ground underneath him, um, which obviously indicated that at least two of the rounds were fired in. They were through and through his, his chest into the ground. He had a gunshot wound to the left temple which we could tell very early on was, it wasn't contact, but it was close to contact because there was some stippling on the left side of his face. But as we processed the scene further, something really unusual popped up. And that was um, when the medical examiner got there and we examined the body a little more closely, we found some um, stab wounds in, in his abdomen, which all of a sudden now, are we thinking one attacker? Or are we thinking two attackers or maybe more? Um, they couldn't tell if the, the wounds were post-mortem or not. So it was a, a, just another wrinkle in, in the investigation. Well, people ask me, well, what it's like doing one of these types of investigations. I oftentimes will tell them it's like getting a, a jigsaw puzzle that uh, is 2,000 pieces, but they don't give you the picture. Yeah. So so you don't understand the context of what's going on. We, we, we had had uh, road officers start searching for his vehicle. Yeah. Fortunately, his wallet was there, so we were able to positively identify him from his Michigan driver's license. We did a search. We found out the type of vehicle that he had, which was uh, a Volvo, and uh, we put that out to our uniformed officers and um, the mall security there, 12 Oak Security um, has a mobile unit and we provided them with that information on the, the chance that it may be parked somewhere in their humongous parking lots. And within a, a relatively short period of time, security located his vehicle at a Denny's restaurant, which is uh, adjacent to the to 12 Oaks Mall. 
when you went up to the vehicle or you saw the pictures from the vehicle, do you remember anything that was peculiar that you could see from the outside? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I made the scene before it was towed. And I remember, you know, walking up to the vehicle and looking inside. And the first thing that I noticed was that there was a white cotton towel, kind of like about the size of a hand towel that was draped over the gear shift. As soon as I, I saw that, I'm like, okay, you know, somebody has probably wiped this vehicle down. We impounded it. Um, state police took it to their crime lab, did full processing of it. And, you know, we worked enough investigations to know if you're holding your breath for a fingerprint, it, it's probably unlikely because the only ones you're going to get are of the family members or of the driver. But I thought, you know, hey, you know, it's obviously worth a shot and something that we should do. But the unique thing was that when they processed that entire vehicle, they didn't find anyone's fingerprints. Which led back to your belief that what had happened in the vehicle was that it had been wiped down. Yeah. And, and I, I know this from working with you for so long. Uh, you're a big believer in the power of victimology. Yeah. Of the usefulness of that information. So so explain what, what, that, what that is as a concept, if you would. Oftentimes people will Google victimology. And if you're listening to this podcast, it's worthless. My definition of victimology is completely different. It's learning everything there is to know about your victim. There are really only two crimes that the police investigate where you probably will not get an opportunity to talk to the victim. If you're robbed, if you're raped, if you're assaulted, if your home was broken into, we always go to the victim. What time did you leave? You know, what time did you get home? Did you lock the door? When there's a homicide or there's a kidnapping and you, you haven't been returned yet, you don't get an opportunity to ask that person, you know, why were you at Denny's? Why did you park your car over here? Learning those things through victimology. What is their routine? What are their hobbies? Who are their friends? Who are their enemies? Where do they work? What's their financial status? Are they involved in drugs? Do they have any uh, habits that they may be hiding? Maybe, you know, drug use, gambling, visiting prostitutes. All of that information is really helpful. The difficult thing with victimology is you get a ton of information that comes in, but you have no idea what's important. You know, who somebody's friend is, that may be important. It may not be important at all. You know, how much money they have in their bank account, what they pay you use to pay their last bill, where they went shopping. You know, it might be worthless, but it might be incredibly valuable. And, and in this case, it, it turned out to be very valuable. Well, going back to my puzzle analogy, uh, would you agree that getting all that information now turns this 2000 piece puzzle into it stays a 2000 piece successful completion, but you've got to figure out which 2000 of 2,500 pieces. Exactly. Yeah. So, so not only do you not have a picture, but you have a whole bunch of extra pieces that don't fit in, don't belong, but you don't know it until you may yeah. put this entire picture together. Yeah. That that's really the important thing. And as, as investigators, you know, once, when somebody turns up as a homicide victim, obviously we want to know who their enemies are or who they've had disagreements with. But we can't lock in on a theory because when we lock in on a theory, we ignore those other pieces of the puzzle that are important that we don't think 
are important because it doesn't fit our theory of the case. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I find that very interesting that you have to keep an open mind throughout the whole process. And I think it's human nature to kind of hone in on something. So I think that's sure. counterintuitive to what's sure. natural for us. Does that be right? Oh, yeah. Um, have you ever watched um, the Netflix, um, they call it a documentary, I call it a docudrama, um, Making a Murderer? <laughs> Yes, I watched Okay, that. all right. So this docudrama, you know, Stephen Avery was falsely convicted of a rape he didn't commit. And, and I think this is a classic example of investigators having a theory of the case and deciding that they had caught the person. When there was additional information that came in that said, hey, you might not have the right guy. Did they have an open mind and say, hey, you know what? I think I have the right guy, but I'm going to run this down anyway. No, what they did was they completely ignored it. And as a result of completely ignoring it, what happened? You know, we sent the wrong man to prison for 18 years. And I learned this very early on as an investigator. Um, keep an open mind. It's okay to have a theory. But don't exclude information that you don't think fits. Process it, think about it, keep it in the back of your head. Another valuable thing with keeping an open mind, and whether it you know, might be somebody else who did it, is oftentimes by going out and vigorously investigating those other leads, if you are correct and you do find the responsible person, you have now limited that person's defense when it comes to trial. So, and I think there's been multiple cases over the years where you see, you know, somebody's charged and there's some evidence that they're involved. They get into trial and all of a sudden they say, the Peterson who killed his wife on, on Christmas, all right? You know, he said, you know, these, there were these people who were walking through the neighborhood or there was this suspicious car and... The police really didn't investigate that. Well, when it came to trial, it turned out to be a big thing. Fortunately, you know, he was still convicted. But as responsible investigators, our job is not to hold somebody accountable. It's not to get justice for the victims. Our job is not to prosecute somebody or make an arrest. It is to find out the truth. And if we stay focused in on finding out what the truth is, we keep our mind open to all possibilities. At that point, the successful prosecution is a byproduct yeah. of finding the truth. The right person going to jail is a byproduct of finding the truth. And we don't make it personal. Which, again, it, it helps you to find the truth. Absolutely. When you started doing your, your victimology on the victim, what was it that you found? I found out that um, he'd been convicted of multiple breaking and enterings, um, mostly of educational institutions where he would go in and, and steal computers and then he would sell them on the side. He wasn't a drug user. He hung around with people who used and sold drugs, but he never got high. All of his friends, his family, um, just said that, that that wasn't his thing. He was working a job where he was um, kind of a manager of a furniture store, but there were also indications that he'd been to prison for about five years and had been recently paroled, about a year before that. But there were indications that he hadn't been 
completely honest with everybody. He had a girlfriend who, instead of saying, hey, I was in prison for the last five years, he told her that he was a missionary in Africa and he'd been out of the country for a long time. And he acted like he was a devout Christian when I don't think there was a single person that ever saw him, you know, remotely close to a church or pray or, and there were some indications that he was involved in some insurance fraud. And what was the insurance fraud about? So um, the insurance fraud was, he was in prison with um, another guy called Kevin Michaelitis. And Kevin had pulled multiple false insurance claims where he would go to people and he would have them add uh, a ring to their um, insurance rider. And he would provide them with an appraisal of that ring, which was about $8,000. And then the people would fake a break-in and report the ring is stolen. And the insurance companies, because it was on the rider, would pay off, you know, six to $8,000. And we found out through our investigation that um, Cameron had done the same thing. He had, he had reported uh, a break-in at his house. And what told us right away that it was a false break-in was what he reported is missing. You know, it wasn't jewelry and money and a laptop. It was um, his whole CPU. It was a washer, a dryer, a sleigh bed, and a ring. I'm searching my memory bank going, who the hell would ever, you know, steal a washer and a dryer? So it looked fake right away. And then during our investigation, our, we did a search warrant at, at uh, his house. We inspected his washer and dryer. And as um, we expected, the serial numbers for the washer and dryer had been filed off. So, so he could have gotten away with it. He just got a little too greedy. Yeah. I, well, he actually did get away with the the false insurance claim, you know, and that's, you know, once again, goes back to investigators. Don't always take things at face value. Now, don't always be cynical and assume that everybody's a liar and a cheat. But you know, you really have to ask yourself, like, who would steal a sleigh bed? You know, would, would you also agree, though, that one of the most difficult things to prove is that something didn't happen? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, and that's that's the difficult thing when it comes to insurance and false reports is, you know, to to prove a negative is is really difficult. That actual report is one of the things that led to his actual demise. Well, well you mentioned the name Kevin Michaelitis. How did you come across Kevin Michaelitis? During our search warrant of Cameron's house, um, we found a series of business papers where they had incorporated a business called Extensive Enterprises. The two owners were Cameron Sanders and Kevin Michaelitis. And it had been incorporated about, um, about nine months before Cameron's uh, murder. The business was only a business on paper. They had no assets, liabilities, or financial records. And the business was registered to Kevin Michaelitis's house. In some of those papers, we found life insurance papers. And Cameron Sanders and Kevin Michaelitis had both taken out what is called a key man policy. So when you go into business with somebody, um, you can take out life insurance where the beneficiary is your business partner. So Kevin was Cameron's beneficiary and Cameron was Kevin's beneficiary. Well, Cameron's net worth, I think at the time, 
he was renting the trailer he was living in. He had a car that still had, I think, four years of payments left on it. So he was negative on the car. And I think he had less than $150 in the bank. So he he doesn't have any net worth, but he went out and he purchased a $600,000 life insurance policy. All right. So this is where my question comes in. Yes, what they're getting into sounds fraudulent, but are there anything like red flags that go off for insurance companies where they say, hey, maybe we need to look at this before we issue the policy? So I'm not an expert in, in the insurance industry, but I would say this, you know, most insurance agents work on commission. So as long as you're paying the premium, you know, they really don't care until it comes time to make a claim. And that's that's really what happened with, with this case. And when the policy was first purchased, it wasn't for $600,000. The initial purchase was for 100000 correct? Yeah, yeah the, the initial purchase was for 100000 And then after they cleared that first hurdle and the, the policy went into effect, they called in and, and had it bumped up to $600,000 each. Okay, and, and so Kevin's name pops up as the business partner. Uh, of this guy. Uh, Did you do any research on Kevin? Yeah, Kevin was in prison with Cameron and uh, he was out. He had completed his parole. He was living in Farmington Hills, which is a neighboring town. Um, And he was working at Ford Motor Company. So so did you ever come across the time, the opportunity to speak to Kevin Michaelitis? I did. um, And that that's one of the things I'll remember really for my entire career because um, we went over there. We knew where he, where he lived and uh, knocked on his door because I didn't want to call him and talk to him over the phone. We went to his house and when we went to his house, the door was answered by his wife and we introduced ourselves and she said right away, hey, we're not talking without our attorney. So I gave her my business card. And uh, we went back to the station, which is probably about, oh, maybe a 15-minute drive. And within minutes of arriving there, Kevin called me on the phone. He said, you know, hey, I really don't know that much. You know, uh, I wasn't really that close with him. I know he was doing some kind of shady things. And I I encouraged him to come on in and and talk to me. And he refused to come in unless I would um, dismiss a retail fraud case that we had pending against him. And it was only a it was only a simple misdemeanor case and dismissing it wouldn't have been, you know, anything difficult to do. But I didn't want to let him think that he was in control or that I really needed this interview with him. So I simply told him, you know, hey, I'm not going to do that. You know, if my best friend or one of my good friends was killed, I wouldn't be asking for anything. As a matter of fact, I'd have shown up at the police station and said, you know, what are you guys doing? How can I help? Um, Asking a million questions. And he said, well, you know, we're all ex-cons and, you know, things happen and that's not the way we act. And I said, that's fine. You know, I just won't talk to you. About 10 minutes after that, his attorney called and said, you know, hey, he'd be willing to come in if we dismissed this retail fraud uh, case against them. And I said, you know, it's not going to happen. We, we've got a pretty good idea on what's going on here. And we've developed some suspects and um, we're just going to work the case without Kevin's cooperation. Good luck with your retail fraud. And I hung up the phone. It was about two weeks after that his attorney agreed to have Kevin come in uh, for an interview and, and sit down with us. 
At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy, because you deserve more. So just to be clear, he identified himself as Cameron's best friend. Yes. And yet he still didn't come in to assist until two weeks after. Exactly. And then, again, as you're doing the research, you also had found that Kevin had uh, another contact with police, not for a criminal matter, but for an accident. Yeah. So um, obviously he he was a person of interest. So um, we did a workup on him and he has a rather extensive criminal history, mostly narcotics related. There were a few breaking and enterings on there. But um, in our report system, um, we found that he had been involved in a single motor vehicle accident um, about four months before the murder in January, um, on the main road, which Cameron lived off of. Um, it was an icy day. Kevin was driving, um, a Ford F, um, 250 pickup truck. It slid off the road and he had some damage to, uh, the right-hand side of his vehicle, the, um, uh, the step. Uh, what do they call that? A little running board. Yeah, the running board. Exactly. The the running board was damaged and and he filed a report for insurance purposes. And and when Kevin finally did come to talk to you, uh, some folks went out and were taking a look at the vehicle. What did they find on the vehicle? Well, the interesting thing that they found on the vehicle was because the running board was damaged on the passenger side, he or someone else had removed that running board. On the driver's side of the vehicle, the running board was still present. And that's the vehicle that he drove for our interview that day. Okay. And then uh, did anything interesting come about from the interview? Um, Yeah. So he was there with his attorney. So I knew that if I launched into an interrogation, that that would halt the process right there. So... I decided to do a lengthy interview and get as much information from him as possible. I want to go back a little bit in the investigation if I could, uh, because one, one of the things that uh, was a, a struggle at first was uh, we, we knew there was a, a body, but we didn't know when yeah. this had occurred. But we, we got a pretty good idea of it. How did that come about? This was pre-dumped the cell phone, which is, you know, the first thing we do um, in today's day and age, it, we still had cell phones and we could track when the last outgoing phone call was or the last phone call, the incoming that was um, was answered. And we knew it was sometime, you know, on the late evening hours of April 10th to sometime on the 11th. I, I'm not a detail oriented guy. Um, Mike, you know that better than most. When it comes to the small details, that that's not for me. But we were fortunate enough to have one of the other detectives who, like Michael, is a very detail-oriented guy. So we collected up all of the in-car camera recordings for the night of the 10th and the night of the 11th and said to this guy, Jared, sit down. 
and watch these. And it was hours long. We said, you know, just look for this pickup truck. We thought, you know, we might find a needle in a haystack. Uh, I remember we came back from lunch and Jared was all excited and said, oh my God, you got to see this, you know? So we went into the room and we viewed the in-car videotape from Jeff Brown, who was parked less than a mile from the homicide scene at about um, 1.35 in the morning. And he's parked in the driveway of a cemetery with his camera pointing out towards Novi Road, which is the main road. And because it's so early in the morning, there's very few cars. And all of a sudden, you see this Ford F-250 pickup truck drive northbound. And about four minutes later, you see a Ford F-250 pickup drive southbound. There's a lot of Ford F-250s in the world, but what are the chances that on that day, at that time, you get a vehicle which looks very similar to the suspect's vehicle in the area around the homicide? So we contacted Ford Motor Company and we're blessed to live in Metro Detroit where that's not a hard thing. And we were able to find the individual who was the engineer that was in charge of the design and production of Ford F-150, 250s, and 350s. We sat down with him without any prompting whatsoever. We said, we're going to show you a videotape. We want you to tell us, you know, as much as you can about that vehicle. And on the northbound vehicle, he rattled off, that's a Ford F-250 or 350 4x4 crew cab pickup truck with cargo lights, aero mirrors. It's probably a diesel and it doesn't have any running boards. And I'm like, how the heck do you know that? And he, he broke it down like frame by frame, picking things out. I said, okay, that's great. What can you tell me about this other vehicle, the Southbound vehicle? He said, that's a Ford F-50 or 250. And he gave us years for that body style, which, which fit Kevin's. He said, yeah, that's a Ford F-250 or 350. It's, you know, crew cab, cargo lights, aero mirrors. But that pickup truck has running boards. And as soon as he detailed out why he could say the one northbound did not have running boards and the one southbound had running boards, we knew we were on to something because that fits Kevin's truck. The engineer thought he was looking at two different trucks because, you know, one had running boards and one doesn't. Who, who runs around with only one running board? But that was a huge, huge lead in the case. Did, did you also happen to have opportunity to talk to a couple young ladies that had been dining at the TGI Fridays? Yeah, we did. You know, um, I'm sure if you listen to the news or read in the paper and you see, you know, hey, the, the police are investigating this homicide, usually somewhere in the last paragraph or so, it says, hey, if anybody um, has any information or was in the area, you know, call this police department at this number. And, and that's what we did with our press releases. And one of the mornings following the um, discovery of the homicide, I got a telephone call from an individual who reported, you know, some cars squealing in the area, tires squealing. And um, he lived just adjacent to 12 Oaks. So it was, it was mildly interesting, but it, his description was pretty much squealing tires. But at the very end of the conversation, he said, you know, I, I work with a couple of ladies and they were having dinner at TGI Fridays, which is 
just on the opposite side of the expressway from where the homicide scene was. And he said, they, they heard gunshots. So uh, we got their contact information and brought them in. And they told us the story that on the early morning hours of uh, April 11th, between 1.20 and 1.35, and this was verified through their uh, receipt that uh, they paid for their meal. So we were walking out to the parking lot and we heard five gunshots. So we brought them out to the parking lot and said, could you tell what direction they were coming from? And they pointed in the exact direction of where his body was. The five shots were consistent with the five gunshot wounds that um, we ultimately discovered on his body. So we were able to affix that the murder happened sometime between 1.20 and 1.35. And then when you link that with the videotape, which has him at like 135 or 138 northbound and 142 southbound. It, put, it puts together a pretty compelling picture. What we didn't have though was who was driving that truck. And that's where the interview became important. Did you happen to ask Kevin about seeing Cameron uh, during that time period? Yeah. He, he had said that Cameron had um, received an insurance settlement for this break-in at his house and that Cameron was going to buy five to ten pounds of marijuana and sell it so that he could make some money, some quick cash. And that Cameron was going to buy some drugs from a drug dealer out of Port Huron that he was in, uh, in prison with. And that's why Cameron was up at Denny's that night. Kevin said, you know, he had no part of that, of course. Uh, he said that he'd went and uh, visited his, his brother, Sean, at a job site in Northville, which is the town just south of, of Novi, and that he left there right around midnight and drove up to Denny's just to check on Cameron. When he checked on Cameron, the drug dealer wasn't there yet. They had a very short conversation, and then he left. And during the interview, I had him draw out exactly where Cameron's car was, exactly where his car was, how they parked, and the direction that he left. And he, he didn't admit to driving past the cemetery, which would kind of be the opposite direction. Um, but I asked him, you know, what vehicle he drove. And he goes, well, I, I drive, drove my white truck. And I said, okay, what other vehicles do you drive? And he said, that is the only vehicle I drive, which turned out to be really important when we got to trial because he couldn't claim it was his wife or someone else driving that vehicle. So this interview goes and uh, what happens after the interview? Um, he leaves. I, I tell him, hey, you know, there's there's a possibility I might need you to come back in for a re-interview. Would you be willing to do that? And he says, yeah, sure. You know, no problem. So about um, a week after that, I called him back in. Once again, he comes in with his attorney and now he sits down and he, he starts changing things a little bit. I asked him when he left Denny's, did he turn southbound on Novi Road? He said, well, you know, I'm not sure if I went left or right, but you know, cause I was, I was a little fuzzy that night. Uh, I might've turned right, but I probably turned left and I said, you know, Okay. And then I asked him about firearms because the state police had said that it was the bullets were fired from a 38 or a 357. 
and I asked him if he had any firearms or if Cameron had any firearms. And he told us this story about how Cameron wanted a gun and that Kevin was asking people for a gun uh, for Cameron. This was a new wrinkle. And so as I started to nail him down on this story, we kind of, kind of took a little bit of a pause. And all of a sudden he says, you know, what really fucks me up is if this would have happened in Detroit, it would have been a one day thing. That's it. I mean, I know you guys are doing your job, but it wouldn't have been a big deal. And as soon as he said that, I said, oh my God, now there's, there's no doubt that he's involved. Because what if you're not involved, what could possibly screw you up from the police continuing to look into the death of one of your friends or somebody else? Um, so that turned out to be, um, you know, really big, spontaneous utterance um, that was played over and over again when we got to court. Just for clarification purposes, yeah. uh, now Kevin had priors that involved drugs. Did oh, yeah. Cameron have a background that involved drugs? Did you say no? Absolutely nothing. No, yeah. th- nobody could even even say they ever watched him smoke a joint or a bowl or anything like that. They're just like, that was not his thing. He, he didn't even like to be around people when they were smoking it. But Kevin's background was all in, in narcotics. And, um, you know, that that kind of fell into our theory of the case on, on how things transpired was Kevin tricked Cameron into thinking that this was, you know, really a narcotic sale when he used the narcotic sale to lure him out to this wooded area where he killed him. Now, most of his priors were nonviolent. So, is this normal for him to take this violent turn and and, and kill yeah. somebody? So, you know, it, it's interesting because um, over the years I've learned more about Kevin, and I found out that at the time he was a, a heavy heroin user. I think that likelihood of a six hundred thousand dollar payout can force people to do things that they wouldn't normally do. When it comes to physical violence outside of this murder, uh, as far as I recall, there, there were no other acts of physical violence in his history. He was, you know, predominantly just uh, a, a scammer and a dope dealer. At some point, though, during the investigation, uh, you, you were given information that perhaps a uh, this scheme, for lack of a better term, had perhaps been hatched in prison. Yeah. Um, and what, what, what was the scheme? When we did the original search warrant on Cameron's house, there were all kinds of different documents and things in there. And you, you never know what's important. So we took as much of it as we could. There were a couple of things in there that we didn't necessarily think were important at the time. But as the case evolves, um, they become important. One of them was how to acquire a new identity and start over in life. And another one was how to fake your death. So we start talking to anyone who knows Cameron. And as part of that, um, we end up talking to a couple of people that he was bunkmates with in prison. One of those individuals told us that, hey, he and Cameron had come up with a plan that when they got out of prison, they would go out. They would get life insurance out on each other, and one of them would fake their death for a fake insurance scam. The problem became 
Cameron's partner couldn't get paroled. He he kept getting getting extended and extended, and uh, we believe that eventually Cameron cooked this up with Kevin Michaelitis, and that's why they went out and got the six hundred thousand dollar life insurance policy, so Cameron could fake his death. They would collect the six hundred thousand, split it, each walk away with three hundred, and they're happy. The flaw in the plan was Kevin figured out that if he did it for real, he'd get six hundred thousand instead of three hundred thousand. And it's just one of those things where you never know what's going to become important uh, because there was also a receipt that was found uh, for a, a purchase at, at a Meyer down in Ann Arbor. Yeah. Uh, before this event, and one of the items that was purchased was um, a Ziploc bags and latex gloves, and. Those are important because we found those items along with a new digital scale in the trunk of Cameron's vehicle, which to anyone would scream of drug trafficking. But the condition of all of those items, the scale, the gloves, and the Ziploc bags where they were all brand new. You know, what's the likelihood that somebody who's been dealing dope and dealing dope for a while is going to need a new scale, a new box of Ziploc bags, and a new box of latex gloves all at the same time? The other valuable piece was once we got the purchase time, we went to the store and we watched the videotape because obviously we want to know if somebody was with him. He was alone, but it shows him wearing the exact same clothes he was found dead in. The purchase was made, I think, around 8 o'clock on April 10th, which tells us he was killed late on the 10th, early on the 11th. So you, you get this information from Kevin that, that supposedly Cameron had been looking for a gun. Mm -hmm. And uh, who was he supposedly looking or asking for? It was uh, a, a neighborhood friend of Kevin's, a guy by the name of uh, Nikki Kitts. And, and so when you started trying to find Nikki, what did you find? Well, Nikki's an interesting character because he was living with his parents. He has a, a long history of drug use, nothing with, with sales on there, but he was living with his parents. And we, so we talked with his mother and his mother said that on the night of April 10th, um, Nikki came home about seven o'clock at night. He was very flustered and said, you know what? I'm leaving town. And she said, well, where are you going? And he said, I'm driving to Hawaii. Um, so that'll kind of that kind of talk to you about he's a little bit geographically challenged, <laughs> but literally he loaded up his truck um, with his clothes, his dog. He borrowed a few thousand dollars uh, from his mother and he took off and started driving. And then uh, Nikki ends up driving cross country. Yep. And uh, what, what did he do with his, his dog and his truck? Well, I think when he got to California, he realized that there wasn't a bridge to Hawaii. <laughs> so he put the dog and the truck on, on a ship and he flew over and took up residence there. So this investigation continues. Uh, work is continuing to be done. But, it, but at some point, uh, the decision is made. We need to talk to Nikki and we need to talk to Nikki in person. Of course. I mean, you always want to interview people in person because 80% of the message is body language, right, Mike? That's right. And, and, <laughs> and so so the, the, the presentation was made to the chief, right? Yes. And uh, it had concerns. Uh, what did you find out about uh, taking a dog to Hawaii? I learned that Hawaii has never had a case of rabies. And anyone who brings an animal to Hawaii 
it has to be quarantined for either 60 or 90 days. And literally, they get off the airport, they put the dog right into a kennel. You have to pay for it. So the dog was still being quarantined. And we wanted to go out there and interview Nikki. So the chief came to us and said, you're going to fly out one day, you're going to interview him the second day, and then you're going to fly back the third day. Michael said, yeah, okay, I'll take care of the arrangements. In his travel wizardry, he finds out that it's actually cheaper to fly to Hawaii and stay for six nights and seven days. Imagine that. And it is to do an out and back. So in our line of work, that's what we call a jackpot. Yeah. And small. So we had to sacrifice time away from our family and go to Hawaii for six nights and seven days. I want to point out here again, working with other agencies, Honolulu PD could not have been any more accommodating. No, they were, they were fantastic from the time we arrived. They shepherded us around. They gave us full use of their police department and all, all their resources. You know, a lot of people think, Mike and I went there and worked for a day and then spent five days screwing off and viewing the sites. But honestly, I can tell you, we literally worked our rear ends off for five days. And we had one day where we could go to the Pearl Harbor Memorial and we had enough time to uh, drive up to the, the North Shore and that was it. Would it be accurate to say that what Kevin had told us wasn't true? Yeah. Nikki just pretty much contradicted everything that, that Kevin had said. Um, Nikki admitted that he had a five-shot thirty-eight revolver um, because it was registered to him. Mysteriously, it had been stolen shortly before he left for Hawaii, and he never made a police report. My theory of the case is that eventually Kevin warmed down and and he provided that gun to Kevin and he Nikki knew when this murder was going down and that he could possibly be implicated. So he took off to drive to Hawaii and made sure he kept his Motel 6 receipt. Now did you ever find the actual gun, the actual murder weapon? No, never never recovered the murder weapon. So once we came back from Hawaii, this investigation continued on. I I mean, there was work being done on it, uh, but the prosecutor wasn't willing to charge, correct? Yeah. So we were probably about six months into this investigation, and I I think we, we did absolutely everything that we could do. We submitted the case for an arrest warrant, and they furthered it for further investigation. At a certain point, you kind of reach a dead end. A lot of places would just fold that case file up, put it off to the side and say, oh, well, you know, we tried our best, you know, we're, we're not going to get a warrant. But fortunately in our jurisdiction, we have the resources to be able to dedicate time to it. And that investigation never, it never went cold. It took um, a little over two years to charge Kevin. Having that grit, and continuing to work on it and that never say die attitude, I think really paid off in the end. And, and I hate to use the, the, the terminology big break, but what what was the big break, the big thing that occurred that finally convinced the prosecutor to charge in the case? Well, the big break came when the insurance company refused to pay Kevin his $600,000. You know, there's... Uh, laws in every state that say you can't 
profit from criminal activity. And because he was a suspect or a person of interest in our case, the insurance company said, hey, we can't pay you. So Kevin sued him. And in civil court, fortunately, you know, during the civil process, when you're the plaintiff, you can't take the Fifth Amendment. The insurance company was going to get an opportunity to interview Kevin, and he had to answer all of those questions. When they sat down with him, um, normally you would just have a court reporter and you'd get a written transcript of it, but they audio and video recorded it. And they asked him all the questions, you know, where were you on that night? Did you see Cameron? Did you know Cameron was involved in drugs? Did you ask for a gun? Did Cameron ask for a gun? What route did you take? Where did you go? Vir virtually every important question that the insurance company asked, he gave the opposite answer to what he gave in the police interview. And that was because if he would have said, yes, I knew Cameron was involved in a drug deal, that's disqualifying. If you have a life insurance policy and you're in the commission of a crime and you end up killed, they're not gonna pay. Kevin had to lie to those questions to get the money. Well, that obviously contradicted his police interview and that was, that that, that I think was the big piece that pushed it over the edge. Uh, eventually, uh, charges, get charges against Kevin and, and we go to trial. Yes. And what was the result of the trial? He, he was ultimately convicted. Um, one would think that they would convict him of premeditated murder um, because the facts clearly show it was a premeditated murder. But they came back with a, a second-degree murder charge. But at sentencing, I, I think the judge gave him 55 to 100 years or something like that. I mean, I will be dead and decomposed before he ever comes up for parole. I don't want to downplay the seriousness of the crime, but I keep going back to the fact that there were a lot of red flags before the homicide ever took place. Oh, yeah. If we could have cut that off at the pass, none of this hopefully would ever happen. You know, it's it's interesting you, you bring that up because that's one of the things we, we haven't talked about. The red flags were there, and Cameron saw those red flags because um, on, the, on the night of the homicide. He told his girlfriend where he was going and who he was meeting. He told his grandmother where he was going and who he was meeting. And he had an online chat session with another female where he told her where he was going and who he was meeting. So I think, Cam, especially if, if you want to believe that Cameron was involved in a drug deal, why would he tell all those people where he was going and who he was going to meet up with if he wasn't concerned about his own personal safety. I think he, he was. He just, for whatever reason, um, decided to go through with it, and it cost him his life. Looking back on the case, uh, there are a couple lessons that, that I learned. Number one, you have to do the small things right because mm -hmm. you never know when they're going to become big things. You know, from the accident report, yeah. Uh, to to the uh, uh, the video camera actually watching the video. Yeah. Um, to to uh, going through line by line the all those computer messages. Well, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because if you didn't, I was going to bring it up. And uh, we recovered Cameron Sanders' computer, his desktop computer, and it had a one terabyte hard drive. 
and we had it analyzed and we printed everything out. I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000 pages, right? Mike, my detailed guy, said, you know what? I'll go through it. This is not an exaggeration. When I said the 4,000 pages on his desk, he cleared everything out. He got a cup of coffee, set it off to the side. He took the top piece of paper, he set it down on his desk. He grabbed a ruler and literally set it at the top of the page and he went down line by line by line. Mike, you've been holding out on me. You could, I got a whole bunch of detail-oriented stuff for you to do. Yeah, so <laughs> I left, I went to lunch, I came back, Mike was still going line by line. I got up at the end of the day, I left. Mike was still line by line. I got in early the next morning. Mike beat me in. He's line by line by line. I think midway through day two, all of a sudden he stands up. He's like, hey, come here. I'm like, what you got? Amongst 4,000 pages, I think I think it was eight or 10 lines long. He was having a chat session with a girl. Cameron said, hey, you know, I'm going to have to go here in about 10 minutes. The woman asked him, said, you know, where are you going? And he said, I'm going 12 Oaks Mall underneath that. He put a second message that said, to meet with my buddy, Kevin. And then a few minutes after that, he, he signed off. That was huge because that was on the night of April 10th. When you rely on verbal testimony from other witnesses, you never know what's going to happen when you get to court. They can forget, they can misremember things, or they can recant altogether. But this was computer generated, and it wasn't a lie. And it was rock solid. And I'm not bashful to say that if somebody gave me that 4,000 pages, I would have never found that. I'd have been done with 4,000 pages in about two hours. <laughs> uh, as we're wrapping this one up here, those cases, they may go cold for the agency, but they never go cold for the victim's family. No. And when we went and talked to grandma and we talked to dad and we talked to sister and we talked to girlfriend, the relief that they got at that time, I, I just got goosebumps thinking about it right now because it never it never goes cold for them. Oh, no. They think about it, birthdays, holidays, and they're all, they have no idea what we're doing. I think a lot of families think, eh, they're on to the next one. They don't care. But Kevin's big mistake was underestimating the tenacity of the investigators that were assigned to this case. We didn't care who Cameron Sanders was, what he did, what he was involved with. We knew it was a murder. You don't go around murdering people. And we weren't going to give up that bone. And that that's where he made his big mistake. He, he was right. He should have done it in a major city. It would have been a one-day thing, call it a day. But it wasn't. Vic, I, I just want to tell you, man, it was a pleasure talking to you about this and brent i'm going to throw it out there if it's okay with you at some point i'd love to have him back because this guy is just a plethora of information a true professional a dedicated public servant but i'd like to have him back if it's good with you man i think it's almost necessary because there's a personal story we can get into with vic and he's got other cases that he's worked with you on so there's a wealth of information we can delve into if he would uh, like to come back on with us at some point. I'd love to come back and spend some time with you guys. Just, you know, hey, I, I, I don't mind talking about the case. And, and honestly, if there are what I really like is for people out there to get something out of it. You know, I, I think it's important no matter what stage in our career that we're in, that we try to advance the profession and leave the profession in a better place than what we found it. Because at the end of the day, 
There is nothing I loved more than being a police officer. And I know, I know times are tough now and there might be people saying, yeah, well, you know, you're talking 90s and 2000s. It's still tough, but I'm telling you what, if, if it's about serving people for you and making changes in people's lives, that's what law enforcement's all about. If I had the chance and they came to me and said, you know what, Victor, you got to do it all over again, I wouldn't hesitate for a second. There's some changes I'd make. I'd do a couple of things a little bit differently, but I, I, I love it. I love cops. Well, we, we thank you for your time today because a very interesting case as a, a true crime person, you know, with, I have no law enforcement experience, but I love hearing about these different cases and getting an inside look with two people who worked on it. It's fascinating to me. Thanks for having me. If you guys would uh, like to be a guest on Between the Lines, you can do that just by sending us an email. We would love to hear from you. And it's an easy thing for you to do. All you have to do is send us an email to betweenthelines at virtualacademy.com. And you can get that information on our website, along with all of our previous episodes, links to popular podcast providers and our social media links. It's all right there at Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. Dot com. Great subject matter today, Mike. I appreciate you doing this one, man. This one was special to me.